So now the positive side of right effort, and this involves the stirring up, creating of energy, the bringing up into creation of wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. Wholesome mental and emotional states. So these are feelings we're bringing up and creating. And I think it strikes a lot of people in the culture that they don't know they're allowed to do that. They do it, they seek ways of changing their moods, they seek ways of making themselves more happy. But usually it relies on something external. The idea that you're just allowed to sit in a room and stir up positive mental states without needing any particular good news from the world is not taught in primary school. So this is actually sitting down and playing with the machinery of the mind, trying to bring into creation these positive emotions but with the right source. So people try to make themselves happy by sitting down with a bottle of whiskey as well, or some sort of variety of sports or music and things like this. These are sources which people attempt to bring these things up, but the Buddha is saying, don't rely on those so much. You need to have independence. You need to have more auto-generation of this. You need more self-production of this capacity, and you need to practice it. All of Buddhism is really called a practice. You need to practice these things until they become second nature. So it's a foreign kind of experience sitting down there with a blank sheet of paper and making something coming into existence. And the words that he often uses is stirring up energy. So even energy has to be created. So you have to have the energy to bring these things into existence to begin with. So you're stirring up the energy to create wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. So a couple of processes. How do you get the energy rolling? Well, this happens in ordinary life as well. That's why you have coffee and things like that. Why you go for a walk outside, why you take a few deep breaths, why you splash water on your face. These are all ways of stirring up energy. And so you need to find these inner mechanisms for stirring up energy. And of course, you can actually use those physical means as well. Yoga, for instance, is a kind of a, an approach to the mind through the body. Use just moving the body around until energy arises in the mind. And then there's a pure mental yoga, which is learning how to create these energies in the mind. And then you feel them as if your body is being energized. But I often repeat this idea that the body is actually in the mind. The mind is not in the body. 
because you can be an Olympic long distance runner or a wrestler or something, you come to a meditation retreat, you find yourself unable to sit up. You have the body of an Olympic athlete and you cannot keep your back from sagging. You cannot keep your head up. You'd think if you were physically in that kind of amazing shape that it would be easy to keep your <laughs> your head up. <laughs> but the head is not kept up by physical capacity. It's kept up by mental energy. And the moment you get... And the moment you feel happy, you'll see your, your whole body sits up. The moment you're interested in something, your whole body sits up. Almost as if you're sitting in a tub and the water is rising and you start to feel that zero gravity of being supported by water. And this is, you notice through the retreat probably there were times when you just couldn't, you know, find yourself slumping, you know. Couldn't sit up. And every now and then you see it and think, Something wrong with my back, you know. Maybe I have weak muscles in my back or something. Like no, you have weak muscles in your head. That's <laughs> Got to work those head muscles. <laughs> yeah, it's strictly a matter of the flow of psychic energy. And psychic energy is a vague term. It's really that when you're interested, when you've caught your own interest, then you will immediately sit up. Usually you wait for the world to catch your interest. But this is something we also have to learn to do without external interesting experience. That's why we keep you in a low sensory environment. The most exciting thing out there is the leaves coming out. There's the odd bird whistle as well, but not much more than that. That can be quite enchanting, <laughs> if nothing else is going on. <laughs> but we can't wait and rely on the world to provide us with interesting data. We need to generate interest in the mind itself. We can focus on various topics, and these topics are for the purpose of bringing in wholesome emotional states. And so when we're interested, our body will sit up and we don't have to be at all an Olympic athlete or, you know, you see some elderly monks that sit up very nicely for endless hours. And they're certainly, they're, they haven't done a lick of exercise for the last 35 years. So how do they do it? It's because the energy is coming from the mind, not from the body. Your body is in your mind. And so you need to generate images and structures that capture your attention. But you have to also put a lot of energy into focusing. This is why we give you such topics as the breath. Because it is a very flat, neutral object. It's not intrinsically interesting at all. And so it gives you a tremendous challenge to actually sustain attention on just the fact that you're breathing Of course, if you were in a situation where you, where it was a question of not being able to breathe, you'd be awfully interested in your breath. But it's only when we take it for granted that it's a neutral, dull subject.
But the Buddha gives you that in order to, and realizes it's a tremendous demand on attention to actually make that interesting or to be interested in the breath enough that you can stay with it. But you're generating the capacity by doing this. You're exercising the mind's strengths. You do this, getting it to sustain itself on an object. Ajahn Chah would talk, so when you want to strengthen the body, you move it around. When you want to strengthen the mind, you make it still. It's tremendously, tremendous feat of effort to get the mind to be still. And the more you practice it, the more the strength of the mind coming to stillness. And then even when you direct it to the mildest, sort of what you formerly you would might have considered to be uninteresting, you actually can, what you're doing is invigorating the world that you live in. You're invigorating your ordinary life. Your ordinary life becomes more interesting. When you're waiting for extraordinary moments in your life to be interested, then you weaken the capacity of the mind to appreciate your ordinary life. So we're trying to bring up the quality of your ordinary life. There's nothing unexciting about it. It's a matter of that your interest is waned. So the restoration of this through energy. So the, the Buddha is, is very, he's a bit of a life coach. He's really trying to get you, to inspire you, to stir up energy, to appreciate your life. And one of the ways, of course, is to reflect on the uncertainty of it, the vulnerability of it, and the inevitable end of it. So he's increasing that, that's one of the meditations that you can do to bring up this energy. Ultimately, there's only one little kind of list of the negative things that you want to avoid, and that is the five hindrances, which I've talked about a lot. And there's several lists of the positive ones. One of them is the five faculties, the spiritual faculties which can be a way when you want to bring into existence wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. Five of them are, first one is reasoned conviction or faith. The next is energy itself, then mindfulness, then concentration and wisdom. And you're trying to bring these up and strengthen them. Those are wholesome spiritual faculties. They're also experiences. And you're going to determine to stir them up and create them. You can do it by reflection. There's a number of ways you can do it. Mindfulness will always be involved in this process, but also reflection will be involved in it. That first faculty is incredibly important. It is what is called sadda or faith. Because we're in a sort of post-Christian culture, people who are explaining Buddhism often are a little afraid of that word, but we try to translate it as reasoned conviction. But conviction it is. The ability to make a move 
in a certain direction without having all of the facts <laughs> available. <laughs> to take a chance and go in a certain direction to make a move. In this time, there's a lot of development of critical thinking and analysis. That's the nature of the educational system. And so that kind of making a move is not featured, although you will find it in science and even mathematics, and that in order to initiate something to go into the unknown, you have to take steps where you're out of the known and you have to actually generate energy and go into the unknown because it's paralytic. If you need to know everything ahead of time, if you doubt everything, it's paralytic, very unsatisfactory way to live. So there's something really restorative and very important to the human heart is to set off on this adventure into the uncertain and into the unknown. And that's very invigorating as well. It also raises energy, and you will be flat if you don't want to take any chances. You'll be flat. And by the way, it's impossible to not take any chances because if you don't move, it might be the worst decision you ever made. So there's no safety in clinging to the certain and the known because it may be inadequate. And so that's the situation of humans is that we're in a situation where we have to make choices without all of the facts being even being possible to know. Every time you step out the door in the morning, you step into a world that is uncertain. You don't know what's going to happen. You're going to have to make choices about certain things you can't possibly foresee. And this happens every day of your life. It happens every hour of your life. But you can also discover the joy of that as well, especially if you're a person who wants a lot of data and reflection before making any moves or choices. That's the other end of that spectrum of the five faculties that's the wisdom faculty is the analytical faculty. And the danger there is that it can turn into the skeptical faculty, the pure skepticism where there's an infinite number of possible things and you just end up being paralyzed by, by infinite doubt. However, it's not useless, it's quite useful. Because you can't just be running into the dark all the time. You can't be just plunging into the unknown. There are people who, you can see that, they, they make bad choices. They want to see how far the ice goes out in the spring, see how far you can walk out on the ice. <laughs> it's bold, but it's, at the same time, there's a certain, certain amount of caution that should be exercised, some reflection. So they have the faith faculty in spades, but that's called gullibility. To just believe anything is gullible. To believe nothing is paralytic skepticism. Both of those are unsatisfactory. There's some sort of balance between the wisdom faculty and the faith faculty that needs to be processed. And that's why we call it reasoned conviction and not 
pure skepticism, but wise reflection. And these are wholesome emotional mental states that need to be accessed and feed into your, to be supported by right effort. You are to undertake the development of the spiritual faculties. You have these in some level, and you need to cultivate them and develop them. And right effort's purpose is to turn them actually into something else. You're going to turn your spiritual faculties into spiritual powers. And they're only faculties until you really work them a lot. First of all, it's important to become aware of them, that this is the beauty of the Buddha, is he's a great teacher. He can take the cloudy complexity of the human mind and emotional structure and sort of break it out into some manageable parts that you can sort of see. You can see these things when I'm talking about faith and making choices about things you're not certain of and yet you have to do it and skeptical, how you can get yourself in a skeptical desert as well. You probably recognize some of those experiences. So the Buddha is actually able to extract these things and give you a handful. You know, there's five. It's no accident. There's You can remember them on your one hand. Remember, this is all given before anybody was reading and writing. This had to be remembered. And so these teachings are in nice numerical structures that can be retained. So this generation of the spiritual faculties through right effort is important, and mindfulness, of course, will play a role. You remember that mindfulness works for right effort, that it gets commissioned by right effort and has a job which is assigned by right effort. And at that point, it's no longer called mindfulness, it's called right mindfulness. Before that, it's just mindfulness. But after right effort has hired it, to do a job, then it is now given a new title called Right Mindfulness. And it's embedded in the spiritual faculties. It's the central spiritual faculty. And it has a job there as well. And that is, it's still back in the monitoring structure. It's investigating the relationship between faith, or the ability to make a move, and wisdom the ability to reflect and make a good move. And mindfulness is in there asking, am I just plunging into the dark recklessly? Am I believing everything? Or am I trapped believing nothing? Rejecting all possibilities of movement. Paralyzed by doubt. That's mindfulness is in there evaluating these things and informing consciousness about what's going on in there. The other two faculties are energy and concentration, and they, as you see when we're sitting through the morning or through the, in long periods of time, this, you will see this kind of swing back and forth between energy and concentration. Concentrations, now, mindfulness is keeping an eye on these two as well, 
watching the teeter-totter swing back and forth. The nature of energy is when it goes off the track, it goes to agitation. It becomes over-energetic and can't focus. And concentration's tendency is to slump into sloth and torpor. And so mindfulness is this thing that keeps an eye on this and recognizes that energy is turning into just scattered agitation or that the attempt to concentrate is actually just declining into stagnation, dullness, drowsiness. And mindfulness is this sharp thing that says you're getting dull or you're getting carried away, you're not settling down, your, your mind is all over the place. You need to bring those into balance. It knows what to pull up. It knows that this one is going off into its unwholesome condition. So you actually have to bring it down, which is a form of concentration, or concentration is declining into sloth. You need to bring it up. You need to increase energy. Mindfulness is playing a role in all this. But at the direction of right effort. So right effort is the one that wants this, these faculties to be brought up. All of them have to be brought up and balanced. And by the way, so including right mindfulness. Mindfulness is, at first, it's weak and untrained. And so it has to be trained as well in order to carry out its duties. So in the end, these five faculties start to merge together. They become a unit and they become balanced. So the purpose of all of this is to balance the five faculties, strengthen the five faculties, balance the five faculties until they become five powers, spiritual powers. The spiritual powers are identical to the faculties. By the way, so it's a nice little grouping. It's easy enough to remember on one hand, and then you get two for the price of one because you get your spiritual faculties and you get your spiritual powers, and they're identical except for the level of strength involved. And out of that, you get ten. You get ten of the factors of awakening. There are 37 altogether, and you just got 10 right there. It's nice. These are things that need to be cultivated. By the way, you won't have to remember all 37 for the test class. A lot of them are repetition. They overlap. As you see, there's quite a bit of overlap in the faculties, and so there's an absolute overlap in the faculties and the powers. There's they're the same. But you also see right mindfulness, right mindfulness as a faculty, right mindfulness as a power, right mindfulness as a factor in the Eightfold Path, all kinds of repetition of mindfulness. And you also see it as repetition of effort. So these things overlap. But what are we trying to do with right effort? The right effort to what? to attain enlightenment. But it's not right effort if it's not directed towards that. And what are the processes? Do you just join a church and then you're safe? Or do you just join a club or what? You know, No, from a Buddhist point of view, that would be just too easy. <laughs> I wish it was. <laughs> 
No, you have to do the work. And the work is to put the causes in. And what are the causes? The factors of enlightenment are the causes that need to be put in in order to get the results, the fruition of enlightenment. So these are the enlightenment factors, and right effort has to be put in. And you can also put effort into the rousing of the seven factors of enlightenment. That's another nice little thing. We remember that we basically all of the negative ones can be summarized as five. And then there's several groups of wholesome ones. And one of the nice groups that you can remember is the seven factors of awakening. So you got your five hindrances, seven factors of awakening, and they're pitted against each other. And the right effort is, the first two of the right efforts is to prevent those hindrances from arising to begin with. And when they arise, to get rid of them. So the last eight hours of talks have been something about that. But on the positive side, the seven factors of awakening need to be brought into existence. If they're not there, they're brought into existence and raised up and then sustained and deepened. It's really handy to know these two things because they're basically the basic description of what has to be done. If you can just keep these things, five hindrances have to go. Seven have to be brought into existence. That's what you want in your garden. Remember, we started with this garden simile. It's just a process of gardening, uh, prevention of the weeds. And if they come up, you have to remove them. And then... There's still nothing in your garden. You have to, there's flowers and vegetables and all of these things. Those are the enlightenment factors. The cultivation of this process, the watering, the reading your seed catalog in January on the long winter evening, thinking about those flowers that you want. You're going to have to read some Dhamma. Or you can get it by just listening. Listening to Dhamma talks. That's basically seed catalogs about what you're going to plant in your garden and how to bring them up and maintain them and inspire them. So. so the seven factors are incredibly important. By the way, these two lists will occur again before you get to right concentration. They're going to occur under right mindfulness. They're going to occur in the fourth foundation of right mindfulness. It's called mindfulness of... Dhamma categories. Dhamma Nupassana, the fourth category of right mindfulness, is basically summarized by two things, five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. If you just remember those two things, that's what your mindfulness is working on. Mindfulness is being instructed to remove, overcome and remove covetousness and grief for the world. That's your instruction under right mindfulness, this little phrase that keeps occurring in that covetousness and grief for the world are simply a summary of the first two hindrances. Covetousness is greed. Grief for the world is you don't like it. In other words, aversion. Greed and hatred. The job of Mindfulness in the Eightfold Path is to overcome these two. In fact, they're just a placeholder for the five hindrances. 
Your job with right mindfulness is to eliminate, overcome five hindrances. And then when you finally get to it in the fourth category of right mindfulness, your obligation and duty to the seven factors is not to watch them, not to observe them, but to maintain and sustain them. And it says so under right mindfulness. So mindfulness has certain kinds of activities and duties, and some of its duties is to watch certain things rise and pass away, such as sensations in the body, pleasure, pain, and neutral sensations. Your job is to watch them rise and pass away. That doesn't apply to all the mental contents. It absolutely cannot be applied to that because sensations in your body are not volitional. They rise and pass, so you don't want pain. It just comes to you when you don't want it. And no matter how much you don't want it, it will come anyway. And pleasure comes sometimes, neutral feelings sometimes. You can stand aside from those and watch them rise and pass away and get into a detached sort of view of these. But the instructions in right mindfulness are not that for mental conditions, nor the feelings that accompany mental conditions. It is not to watch them rise and pass away. Are they impermanent? Mental states, emotional states, are they impermanent? Yes. Is the instruction then to just watch them rise and pass away and know their impermanence? No. The instruction is to cultivate those which are positive, the enlightenment factors, and to maintain and deepen them, and to quickly prevent or remove the negative ones. So it's not a neutral watching, rising, and passing away. And the thing about knowing them as impermanent, if you really knew they were impermanent, you would be always in the enlightenment factor range. If you knew that, if you truly knew with wisdom that anger and greed, etc., were intrinsically impermanent, you wouldn't have them. It's because you don't really know that. You're not really watching that you have that. That is not the case with sensations in the body. Even the Buddha had painful sensations in the body, and he knew they were impermanent. They rose and passed away. He knew that. He didn't have the five hindrances. He wasn't observing the five hindrances because they don't arise in his mind. What does arise in his mind? Anything? Yes. Seven factors of awakening continue to arise. He is experiencing those emotions and mental states. Does he know they're impermanent? Yes. Is he just observing them as rising and passing away? No. He's sustaining and choosing amongst them. It's very, very, very important, this distinction. And it's frequently confused people having the idea that they can be objective and detached at the same time they're experiencing what is really called attachment. You can't be. You're not both. You intellectually know 
Oh, this anger is rising and passing away. You intellectually know that. It's not good enough. That's not the definition of knowing. To know and not to do is not to know. If you can't pull it off so that it's gone, then you don't know. You don't know it deeply enough. So this is the development of the spiritual faculties tell their powers. When their powers, they change how you experience reality. They change your relationship to the physical feelings of pleasure, pain, and neutral, the physical bodily feelings, and they change your relationship to negative emotional states and positive emotional states. They change it. That's why they're called powers. They have power to do that now. You're actually, you're on the track. So this is what is meant under right effort for the two positive. The stirring up energy, creating wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen and bringing them into existence. And this is, what are the wholesome mental states? That which leads to enlightenment. You can have them as a nice little list of the seven factors of awakening. Also, you can bring in the spiritual faculties, and you can also bring in the four sublime abidings. Loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity are also great assistance of the development of the enlightenment factors. They are wholesome mental states which can be brought into existence. So there you have 21. Five faculties, five powers, that's 10. Seven factors of awakening, 17. Four faculties, 21. Wholesome mental states that can be generated, brought in. You can be always working on these things. You can feature some for, you can take a month and just work on your spiritual faculties. and You can take a month and just work with the seven factors of awakening. You can take a month and just work with the sublime abidings. It's just whatever is useful, whatever you need. You can self-diagnose a little bit. Say, well, I'm an aversive character. I've got a little bit of hostility to the world. You know, it's not all that greedy, but I'm I'm pretty hostile. I think I'm just going to go and move right into loving kindness for about a month. I just need to, I need a break from this aversion. So you can self-diagnose and work and just feature some of these collections of teachings for long periods of time. A month is a very short time to spend in heaven, isn't it? <laughs> in a sublime, a sublime mansion, the great mansion of loving kindness, who wants to move out? Stay in there as long as you want. So this is what these two positive sides of right effort is. A beautiful invitation. The Buddha is making a beautiful invitation. This isn't just dry work. This business of meditation is not dry work. And sometimes you'll see in the commentary, there's a word, sukha vipassana. Sukha, not sukha as in happiness, but dry. It means dry. Sukha, dry insight. It doesn't... The invitation really is quite juicy. It's not dry, it's juicy. So that, And to get on to these positive, rousing positive things as soon as you can, to make this beautiful in the beginning, 
beautiful in the middle and beautiful in the end. The quicker you can get to the beautiful, yeah. and it's not to be indifferent to the beautiful or detached from the beautiful. That is not the instruction of the Buddha. It is to go swimming in the beautiful, to immerse yourself in the beautiful, and to trust that the beautiful has beautiful results inevitably. So this is a little introduction to the positive side of right effort.